Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and my guest today is Tony Adams, Conservation and Community Impact Director at and Beyond. Tony will be speaking to us about the meaning of responsible travel, sharing examples of how tourism can help make a difference to the world's wild places, and providing advice for travelers looking for a responsible travel company. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today about the concept of responsible travel as it applies to and beyond. Pleased to be with you. Thanks, Kes. Travel is, is now starting to pick up and recover from some of the worst effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think one of, perhaps one of the brighter sides of that has been that a lot of attention has been focused on, you know, what travel should be like once it comes back and on the whole concept of responsible travel. And what I'd like to ask you to do before we sort of get into any more details is to tell me what, what does responsible travel mean to you as, as you and as and beyond defines it? Responsible travel for me is about the decision that the traveler is about to make before they engage their service providers so that they can ensure that their whole trip is undertaken in a responsible manner. So it's really about what the traveler does in their trip and how they do it that really matters. You know, one of the things for me is how do I mitigate my impact? How do we share purpose and how do I contribute whilst gaining the experience I've dreamed about? I mean, I like the saying that says, what's my legacy of my travels? You know, this should reflect and become part of the responsible travel if it's done correctly. Mm. You know, before we look at responsible travel itself more closely, I'd like to kind of set the scene for those of our listeners who might not know exactly what we're talking about. Many of and beyond's guests come from highly developed countries where basic services and structures such as healthcare and education are pretty much guaranteed. But in many of the areas where and beyond operates, there are often gaps in the provision of these services. And this isn't always something that comes naturally. Can you talk a little bit about what is the reality for many of the rural communities near where our lodges are? And what role can tourism operators like and beyond play in the development of these communities? Good question. Thanks, Cass. Um, I think that the rural communities that occur around our lodges tend to have very little in the form of infrastructure. They generally have poor agricultural opportunities. The water sources are also tend to be marginal. And generally speaking, they have low government support structures. From an economic perspective, communities have very few economic opportunities. It's, it mostly comes in the hustle-type economy, and a hustle-type economy is a, is a small and almost an eking out a living commercial opportunity. And therefore, they become very, very dependent. The communities become very dependent on the few economic activities that are available. On the other hand, though, We've got the conservation and wildlife areas. These conservation wildlife areas don't require highly productive soils, and the animals have adapted to these conditions. So although the conditions for the communities are, are tough, they are actually suitable from a, the wildlife area perspective. And this is where tourism comes in. So tourism in these areas is a catalyst, and it literally can bring together the wildlife, the land, and the communities through this economic activity of operating. And Beyond has recognized this opportunity at inception, and this was really through its founders, 
and some of its shareholders' drive to build an integrated model. So we adopted care of the land, care of the wildlife, and care of the people as our vision. And this is still firmly in place 30 years later. This model has worked extremely well and does seem to integrate all three aspects. This is all driven by this economic activity of tourism. It's a symbiotic relationship with the wildlife and the communities. Okay. I think for many people, there seems to be this kind of misconception about responsible travel and luxury travel. And I find that a lot of people seem to think that those two are not compatible. Can you explain why this is really not the case? Yes, uh, Cass, and, and from my point of view, uh, luxury travel has many meanings to different people. And I see this in, in, in the light of creating richer experiences, more purpose, integration and becoming a contributor. It's, it's not about being minimalistic. It's about what you can add, what experiences you can take away, how you can pay it forward in a positive sense. It's about leaving behind empowered communities in conservation. I also see luxury travel as being an enabler of responsible tourism. Through travel, in Beyond's case, you will make a massive contribution to responsible travel just by coming to our lodging. Your travel will enable many different facets, but some of them being community, social infrastructure. You'll enable education through schools and classrooms. You'll enable better health facilities through clinics that are, are enabled in and around the areas around our lodges. You will enable endangered species translocations and protection. You'll enable development of small businesses, conservation lessons, and many more benefits. There are many different uh, luxury responsible tourism operators that are also engaged and delivered in making a difference in all aspects of operating. So we're not the only ones who, who lay claim to this. There are many that, that do. But all of this is made, re, made available through the sheer fact that people are traveling uh, and traveling in, a, in, a, in what can be termed as luxury travel. But the link between wealthy first world tourists coming through to, generally speaking, sometimes third world economic situations and the, the guests departing with their US dollars will enable the communities to receive benefits far beyond than what the, just the company can do. So I think that um, more than debating luxury travel, it's more about what impact you can have by traveling with a responsible company that does it in a luxurious format. Mm -hmm. So it's about what those companies themselves put back into the land and the wildlife and, and the communities. Is that correct? That's correct. And many companies do do this in, in various methodologies, but the benefits are real. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned some of, of the key elements that um, travel can contribute towards, you know, and there's very many things that responsible travel can, can fund and very many aspects of it that you can look at. One of these is minimizing environmental impact. What are some of the factors that need to be considered here? And can you perhaps share examples of how and beyond is dealing with some of these? Sure. The biggest and probably the most important question is to know what impact you're having. And therefore, you have to measure your impact. Now, and beyond has a methodology of we measure a number of different 
usages, for example. So we monitor very closely our fuel usage. We monitor our diesel usage. We monitor our water usage. We strictly monitor the electricity and power usage. All of these are what we call fossil fuels that generate this power. These are, are monitored down to, in, in water's case, how many litres per head per day is being utilised. By monitoring, it gives you the, the insight into being able to uh, make decisions around what steps are to be taken next. For example, when we first introduced this on the water monitoring aspect, we found that lodges were discovering that suddenly their usage was way out of kilter in comparison to similar lodges and actually found underground leakages that weren't appearing on the surface. And so by tracing the pipelines and actually picking up the faults, they were able to, to rectify this. But had we not measured it down to litres per head per day, we would not have been able to pick up whether there was a, a problem or not. So, so that really becomes quite a critical component. The other aspect is your fossil fuels are, are generally known as carbon in a measurement term. By measuring your carbon footprint, you're able to, as a trend, be able to pick up whether you are reducing your carbon imprint or your carbon impact, or in fact, if it's increasing but undertaking certain activities. So that's a really vital component about the reduction side and being able to identify that. I think the other side is what steps one takes to reduce your usage. For example, a lot of our lodges are run off generators that actually are run on diesel. By switching over, for example, to an alternative energy in the form of solar power, we are then utilizing the sun's energy and obviously managing to reduce our pretty hungry generator usage, which obviously comes at a very high cost to the planet. It's looking at, at other alternatives to how we can reduce our impact. And things like, for example, heat pumps. Coming from the past, we had geysers, which were very energy hungry, and, and there was one geyser per room. So this geyser would have to keep hot for that specific moment when a guest turned on the tap and, and actually got hot water instantly. Now what we're doing is we're using heat pumps, which is a different methodology of how to generate hot water. It's one pump that does many rooms, and it's much more effective on energy. One of the other environmental aspects is the design of lodges. You know, when you design your lodge, it has to take into a number of factors, and one of them obviously being the appeal to the guest. And the second, obviously, is the practicality. But it really lies in the design of how you utilize different energies, mitigating heat or cold, for example, whether you can reutilize water or energy. So we do a lot in the actual design of our lodges at the time of designing our lodges and changing our lodges. If we upgrade and lodge, then we will retrofit a lot of our improvements on the technology side that we can build in just to lessen our impact. I think the other aspect is buying local. There's a whole other side to it, which is not just about the physical. It's more about the actions that are related to giving an experience. And that is buying locally, less distance to travel in receiving goods to supply to guests. So be that food, be that fuel, whatever that may be. But just by making the simple decision to getting it from a source closer to your destination, that can immediately have benefits on reducing our carbon footprint. There's an element of recycling or reusing that one needs to always weigh up and what would be possible within your environment of doing that. There's an element of water recycling. 
that one should be looking at. And then there's an element of protection of certain elements like your source of water. So it's all very well having a river running past your lodge where water's plentiful. But in actual fact, what's happening at the source of that river? Is it being abused? Is it being well cared for? What are the activities that are taking place around that source of the river? So your watersheds are become really, really important. And what role do you play in that regard, if any? The last one will be on collaboration. It's about enabling conservation projects, sharing information. By sharing learnings, you just shortcut the process for others to follow. And I think if there was a lot more of an abundance in that regard, we could really, really help each other out to a large degree. I'm going to talk to some of the goals that we've got set up, what we've termed our 2025 goals. One of them is to reduce our carbon footprint. Obviously, that's a big factor and not easily doable, very costly to do it. But we'd like to reach a net zero carbon position by 2030. We'd also like to, on sustainably using water and managing water, we're aiming for a figure of about 395 litres per head per day. We're currently sitting at a group average of about 410 litres. We think that there's still a little more that can be done in terms of, of sharpening up on, on the usage of water. It's the tricks of using low-flow shower heads or using low-flow taps, aerating taps. There's a number of little steps that can be taken conserving that water a little bit more. And then there's another big one, which is about once you've utilized water, it becomes wastewater. And what do you do with that wastewater? And how is that discharged in our natural systems? And that's a very, very important component because if you are discharging really badly contaminated water into the natural system, that's going to have an effect downstream. And as we know, all our rivers, generally speaking in Africa, run into the ocean. The knock-on effect is massive. So just by simply paying attention to what that wastewater discharge looks like and how many solid particles, etc., does it have, are those friendly or unfriendly, we should be able to influence the wastewater quality that gets returned to the system. The next area that we would like to look at is managing our waste. we measuring single-use plastic. That's easier said than done because, as we know, plastic comes in so many different formats. Some of it's reusable, some of it's not reusable, but the biggest factor is the volume of plastic. And how do you take out that mm. volume of plastic? Whenever we receive goods from anywhere, be it uniforms that are individually wrapped in plastic uh, or water that comes in plastic, so just to surround it and protect it. How do we reduce those? Every time we get supplies sent to a lodge, for example, what plastic can we take out? What of the wrappings around the food, for example, the vegetables can we take out? So we'd like to monitor that and we'd like to be able to, to identify what that plastic is, where it comes from, is it reusable, not reusable, and how do we reduce it? And that's a big job, but um, we determined to do that. The other one is how do we responsibly dispose of our waste? Waste is a very big component of what we do. And in, and in our environment, it's a factor that we do have to weigh up. We don't want waste sitting in these prime, pristine areas in the conservation arena. So it's it's what do we do with the waste and how do we get it back to a recycling kind of scenario? And can we reutilize some of that waste? But really it's about the collection and how do you get it off site and how do you recycle it properly? And you know, there's so many opportunities at lodges where, for example, we have wet waste. And that wet waste, what is termed wet waste, is really 
the vegetables and the peelings that have come out of the food brackets that gets chucked in the bin, is there another use for that? Be it in the form of compost or be that in the form of a, a food source for a piggery. We have in the past been looking quite strongly at that, but the work's never done. We still have to improve on that. So that's a very big goal that we've got firmly in our sights. And then protecting uh, wildlife and habitat biodiversity. We as and beyond really, really believe that these conservation areas and these wild expanses of beautiful untouched land are under pressure, massive pressure, both from the the perspective that the populations are increasing, if you take the worldwide population, it's you know it's set to double by 2050. I mean, how is this planet going to sustain all, all of us unless we change our ways? We're going to have to be smarter about how we do things, and we're going to have to be much more aware of what impact we're actually having. We cannot be sloppy, if that's the right word, about not taking decisions that have to be taken now to enable the you know the sustained biodiversity in the future. We also know that currently our biodiversity is being uh, smashed in all aspects and we read about it internationally, about forests that are being burnt and cut down or agriculture that's moving in. We've got some work to do on the protection of those areas. We would like to protect and preserve 25 million acres of key biospheres and, and watersheds. That's a big number, but we need to start working on how to do that and and how to keep these biospheres in in a protected area as well as the watersheds. We also would like to scale a further 25 million acres through coalitions that enable those areas to be protected. We often hear of a model about the the paying area should pay for the non-paying area. So in Lionscapes, for example, which is an organization that is set up to protect lions and to ensure that wild lions are sustained throughout Africa and wherever they occur naturally. Now, those lines have already halved in population. Part of that impact on those lines, for example, is, is around the habitat and not having the right habitat or having the areas to enable their free roaming and the conflict with humans that comes through either encroachment from humans or lions encroaching on humans. It's to try and set up areas that would be suitable to enable those lions not to become a decreasing species. Pangolins, for example, we also know are, are, are very high in people's minds at the moment because there's been a lot of hype around that. But pangolins are hugely threatened, similar to rhinos, and being able to set aside areas so, yes, so putting 25 million acres through coalitions of change, a big goal. It's a nice challenge. On the human side, we always say that um, environmental impacts generally is driven by, a lot of them driven by humans. So we have to work out what are we doing on that front. And part of what we're saying is, you know, from an employment and a skills training perspective, we need to be taking responsibility. And Beyond has specifically undertaken to, to do uh, 65% of the staff employed should be from the local communities surrounding the reserves of the conservation area. We should be taking unskilled local community members, exposing them to work disciplines and to facilitate skills so that these individuals which come from the communities have the ability to walk into another organization, apply for a job and have an experience base to talk to. Because generally speaking, we know right now in Africa, we have the fastest growing 
youth in the world. Okay, we also know that our unemployment in the youth sector is incredibly high. So even somebody who has studied or alternatively has been through schooling, you would think that that would enable them to being able to find a job. No, that's not the case. They are not necessarily being employed and they don't have the experience to even get in through the first door. So there's this massive youth sector that's sitting out there I see that as energy that that could be utilized positively. And we've got so many challenges. How do we get that energy coming into these spaces where we need hands and drivers and talent to be able to take it forward? So we've got to skill people up. And we also have undertaken in certain countries to support a, a program through the Africa Foundation. We see them as our collaboration partner in all the community work that we do as and beyond. And uh, the Africa Foundation have facilitated an external program called Yes for Youth, and this is to enable people to get the experience. So we're applying the Yes for Youth program in our in our different lodges, and through doing that, we hopefully will be able to get some more of the youth employed. Then it's never at the expense of just of our staff. We have a massive training campaign in our in our lodges, which also includes getting national qualifications. So it's enabling people to take their next uh, steps forward. And as far as procurement, it's just an opportunity that, you know, our lodges spend money every month and we have to buy goods and services. And how much of that can we actually put into local? How much of the economy external to the reserves can we impact by creating opportunities? So we've put some measures to that because, once again, as I said earlier, you know, you've got to measure your impact. And only when it comes out in measurement can you actually say whether it's been successful or not. So we've said 65% of our cash outflow must come from the procurement and goods and services and skills that flows from the local businesses within agreed radiuses of the operations. So we are almost forcing our operations in our lodges to think differently. You know, Cass, for me, one of the exciting parts is that once you open that door and people understand what you're on about and what you want to achieve, and it's not about me achieving, it's about what do we have to do for conservation and for our survival and becoming sustainable. Boy, are they there and they flourish. And we're seeing that people are coming up with unique different systems of how to apply this in their different regions and how to make it possible. So it's, it's a very, very encouraging and very exciting. It's not easy, definitely not easy. I mean, you know, if you're operating in a rural area that has very little suppliers external to that conservation area, how do you suddenly start procuring 65% of your cash outflow in those areas when they don't have the services and goods to supply? That's a challenge for us. And, and obviously, we're working very closely once again with the Africa Foundation on uh, facilitating that. The Africa Foundation, once again, have another program that they're following called the Hustle Economy. And the Hustle Economy is about taking the communities in and around these conservation areas that we operate in and the communities that we work with and identifying what activities in the economic sense take place. So when we think economies, and I'm just uh, I'm referring to sort of a broader sense here and maybe a little bit of taking a bit of liberty here, but, uh, but we always think of uh, I want a big supplier or I want a supermarket chain or I want a – that's not the economy we're talking about in the hustle economy. We're talking about the small, tiny, sometimes it's trading 
vegetables on a daily basis that enables that person to do something. Sometimes it's about creating baskets. It can be a very small economic activity, what we would term a very small economic activity, but actually sustains those individuals within the community and gives them a daily income, which enables them. So how do we get to grips with this hustle economy and how do we change our thinking in terms of being able to procure more of those skills that won't affect the guest's experience and will enhance the guest experience. So we don't want to buy vegetables that are not going to be up to scratch just because we want to support local. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying those vegetables have to be at the same quality that we can buy them from a major central depot that dispenses vegetables. It's about being able to source at the quality you require and in the quantity and the, at the the regular spaces that we buy it, you know, I think it's very hard as a to support just a, a business who's dependent on you because one day you've got 100% guests and one day you've got 2% guests. So, so therefore you're going to buy accordingly and how does that business survive? So it's about actually getting skills into that business that we are not, as a, as a lodge buyer, we're not just the sole source of, of supply. So it's quite a big job to, to I think, enable, but uh, very committed to doing that. And then what we also have done is we said that we want to increase our cash outflow by 30% to small community-owned based businesses in our identified communities. And that sort of category is somebody who is potentially has a bakery external to the reserve, somebody potentially who makes candles external to the reserve, and buying those kind of services, somebody who supplies firewood on a sustainable basis. It's to increase that by 30%. And we currently are already supporting businesses in that regard, but we are saying we want to increase off the base that we currently support. By 2025, we want to have increased that by 30%. One of the things that come up quite often is that the communities often refer to the fact that they are not included in the reserves, that there's a fence line that occurs, and they might even be custodians of the land, but there's a fence line that divides them away from the utilisation aspect of that land or alternatively its resources. And we are again trying to find different ways of how do we increase the resource utilisation to facilitate some of that as well so that people can get access Medicinal plants are found in these naturally occurring areas. Generally, those medicinal plants have been almost taken out external to the reserve just because of consumption or utilisation, but they're available in the conservation areas. How do we facilitate a, a two-way street that we can get this? We make sure that the, the resources are overutilised, but at the same time, people get the benefits. Those are some of the aspects that, we, that we're dealing with. We also talk about different species which attract our markets, so our guests. And part of that is definitely what we term the big five, you know, so it's, it's, it's the lion, leopard, rhino, buffalo, and elephant. Those are exciters, you know, guests who come across want to see that. I mean, that's what's been broadcast across the world. It's what you come to Africa to see. And some of them are under massive threat. So, for yes. example, the rhinos. We know that the rhinos are being slaughtered at a, at a rate mm. that we're not sure whether there will be a future for rhinos in natural areas that they are free to roam. There's a lot of places where rhinos are, are roaming in those areas, but they have a set of guards that are full-time, mm. 24 hours following them. So we are taking actions as far as rhino are concerned 
to try and establish little breeding nodes of these endangered species. So we've sent 87 rhino through to Botswana, for example, to set up a small population there. The population has grown to 140. So even if there is poaching of those rhinos, which we expect and don't think that we will be immune or don't think Botswana will be immune to that, we will have had a chance at having another population big enough to potentially get through this onslaught. And the same in, you know, supplying endangered species, for example, rhinos to Akagera in Rwanda or lions, for example, we donated lions through to to Akagera. That's establishing another population within an area that has a devoid of those species. And it's a means of protecting and creating separate breeding nodes. So we are doing a tremendous amount around the wildlife aspect of creating that. And then Oceans Without Borders, this is another initiative that Beyond has undertaken. And it's once again, Mm -hmm. it's about mitigating certain impacts that are happening. So we know the oceans are being overfished. We know that the local communities, some of the local communities in those areas that we operate, their sole economic driver is the fish that they can fish out of the sea. It's how do we make sure that the populations are able to sustain the fishing? And is that even being monitored? Are there checks and balances around that? So we've done a tremendous amount around setting up something that we've called Oceans Without Borders. It's an initiative between the Africa Foundation and ourselves. And really, this is about trying to create more protection zones in the ocean and being able to work off facts. So we're doing monitoring of certain key species, uh, predator species. So for example, sharks. Sharks will follow the best feeding ground. They'll move to the best feeding ground. So if we're able to watch where a shark goes and we're able to put a tracking device on him, he should take us to the next prime spot where fish occur. If we can identify those spots, we're able to potentially protect them. We're monitoring sharks. We're monitoring Mm -hmm. turtles. We have recording devices that we put under in the ocean. And these will tell us the noise levels of fish populations and their feeding or against the reefs and how busy the reefs are or alternatively how many whale pods come past because they're all identifiable by their different songs. So it's to gather the information and to try and get an understanding of of what impact we're having on those various areas. So we have them in in different places along Mozambique. We have two. We have Mizi Island and we have Benguera. Those are both islands that we're involved in and therefore have set up these uh, monitoring aspects as well as working on the protection of those areas. We have Nemba Island, which is just off Zanzibar, which we're also working very closely with the authorities to try and Mm. create these protection that we believe should be in place to ensure the sustainability of the oceans going forward. So these huge drivers on the protection side, both terrestrial and on the oceanic side, that gives you some idea of some of the steps we are taking. Well, that's definitely a great deal of information. I think it showcases the complexity of everything that goes into actually creating a responsible travel company or responsible travel situation. I think what I'd like to do is sort of delve into a couple of elements that came up or questions that came up as you were talking. And Tony, you spoke about and beyond seeking to reduce its carbon footprint. And I know that carbon offsetting in particular has been something that's been very widely spoken about. And it's a term that's, you know, that's almost become part of the mainstream lexicon. And I'm not sure that everybody actually understands correctly what it is. Do you think you could speak about just 
what is carbon offsetting and what is the difference between this and carbon reduction? And why do you consider both to be important? Okay, so firstly, I need to state, Kess, that I'm not a carbon expert. Okay, so so what I'm going to impart from you is what I understand by what carbon is. But um, let's start out with uh, carbon offsetting. So carbon offsetting, once you have measured your carbon footprint, okay, and we understand what impact we're having. So, for example, carbon offsetting might be for a guest's uh, case. If they fly across to Africa to come and have an experience, we know that that aeroplane is utilizing and creating so much carbon. And there are measurements and each airline knows exactly what that is. So the guests in terms of their behavior are initiating the flight with an airline for themselves and they are creating a carbon footprint. And for them to be able to to nullify the carbon footprint, they can only do that really by carbon offsetting because they don't have the ability to influence the airline in any other form than whether they support it or don't support it. But what they can do is they can pay a sum of money to a project which is offsetting the carbon impact. They are certified projects. It's not an easy certification. So if it's a responsible certification, the effect will be that they will have taken the impact of the carbon from their trip. They will have nullified that. And they can do that simply by paying money to offset that carbon. So we as a lodge have the same opportunity. We could, in fact, take our impacts, which are generating carbon. We measure the carbon and we say, we're generating 10,000 tons of carbon per year, and we would like to offset that. And uh, to offset that, that's going to cost X amount of money as we buy carbon credits to nullify the carbon that we've created. That's how the carbon credits work, okay? It doesn't really stop the carbon generation, if I can put it that way, because it's a, it's a very easy way of nullifying your carbon effect. But actually here we're trying to reduce carbon. The planet can't heat up more than 1.5 degrees. If it goes to 2 degrees, we're in trouble as a planet. And that comes from a number of aspects. The, the, the ocean currents might change, the climate will change, the impact on the, on the different species, the bees, the birds will all be impacted. So what we're trying to do there is, is actually reduce our carbon. And carbon offsetting is one way of mitigating it, but it doesn't necessarily always lead to changes in behavior. Whereas the organizations that are supplying the carbon offsetting, yes, they're doing a great job. Yes, they are mitigating carbon to a certain degree. But I don't know that it's enough for the planet to survive at this point. I think that if we talk to carbon reduction, though, carbon reduction is about positive steps that are being taken. And it can be in a, in a very simple method even. You know, when you buy an appliance for, you, for your house or wherever, if you buy a efficient fridge, for example, or, or air conditioner, uh, in the lodger's case, that has less carbon impact. And so it's a very easy step to take. And so carbon reduction would be about finding out what are, what are the efficiencies in terms of appliances that you can, you can buy. It would be about could you put on solar, which we know is also going to reduce your carbon footprint. So it's about the steps, really, that one's taking to actually take the carbon out of the equation completely. Yeah, I think that that actually answers my question perfectly. Thank you. Now, 
Tony, you've given some great examples of projects that End Beyond has put into place to reduce threats to wildlife and ecosystems. And obviously, any responsible travel company should be able to give examples like that of what, what it's involved in. Are there any tips that you can give to somebody who's looking to book travel and they want to make sure that the company that they're traveling with has a genuine commitment to conservation? You know, are there any red flags that people should look out for? Yes, thanks, Kesa. I, I like that question, to be honest, um, because it's about the individual booking what they would like to go and experience. They have the control over whether this is going to be a responsible operator that they choose or not. So I'll definitely research the company you're about to travel with. You know, what projects, what social projects, what conservation projects are they involved in? Do they publish what they have achieved in the responsible realm? Because obviously that's proof of the action. I would also look at the company's track record. You know, how long have they been actively involved in taking these actions? Because we know that it's very easy for somebody to claim something. There's a lot of greenwashing in this, particularly in the in the large environments. And we sort of saying, what are the proof points that you that you you know that you're definitely buying something that's bona fide and genuine? And so I think the track record speaks realms in that regard. And I think there's another one, which is, does the company have any recognised responsible certification or are the articles that have ever been produced about that that a journalist could verify some of the actions that have been claimed just to be very aware that there are a lot of organizations who claim to be responsible and claim to be sustainable and both those factors need to be tested if you really want to do the right thing by traveling with them I'd ask if you're traveling with a travel agent, I'd ask them for, for the list of projects that they know are undertaken. I'd ask them for information about the, the company, about certain social steps that they've taken in integration with communities that are in and around those lodges. It's not an easy one and it takes a bit of effort, but if you really want to travel responsibly, you need to make sure that you are making those right decisions. So ask the right questions, yeah. Absolutely. Tony, you've spoken in quite a lot of detail about the way that and beyond works with communities, which is also definitely something that's very important for, for responsible travel. And there seems to be a perception quite often that as long as a lodge or as a, as a company provides local employment, well, then that equates community development. But what you've described with the 65% of cash outflow going to communities building up those economies, creating businesses. That's part of a model that and beyond looks at, which I think you've called inclusive communities. Is that right? Correct, yes. Yeah. I think you've pretty much explained how this concept works, but what are the kinds of things that a traveler can do to probe a company that they want to travel with to determine how they work with communities and whether it is sort of just local employment or if it's something deeper, deeper like this? Well, look, there's always some telling questions. Some of the questions for me is maybe being a little bit direct, I, I would say, do you monitor how many staff are from the communities adjacent to the conservation area, you know, so that you get an understanding of local staff employment? I think that I would also ask, do you have any goals or, or specific numbers that you try and reach in local employment? And I think, you know, understanding that local employment is is only one aspect of, uh, of how to create economic well-being in the in the communities and and quite frankly the communities don't always see being employed as enough 
if I can put it that way. So you do have to do more. Okay. So another question was, does the lodge have any relationship with any of the community structures surrounding the reserve? Because, you know, one of the things that you can say you do X and Y, but you might only be benefiting one individual. So for example, I might choose to buy from one supplier outside the reserve and I can claim that I now support the local community. But we do know that the communities are run, particularly in South Africa, are run and actually across most of Africa are, are run by different structures, community structures. And so by knowing if a lodge has engaged with those structures, we'll tell you the degree at which they are involved with the communities. So I think that would be one, one area. It might be a bit extreme. But the other is, do you have any form of education or social responsibility program with the communities? The other would be, are there any other projects that are being done with any of the communities surrounding the reserve? You know, so is there resource sharing? How are you tackling some of the social issues of youth and unemployment or economic upliftment in the community surrounding the reserve? Because we know that that's a hot button in South Africa. So that's more South Africa applicable. I would ask some very direct questions just to see what the response is, because that should tell you exactly what is being done and, and whether there are gaps. Tony, a bit earlier you spoke about companies that are willing to publish what they have achieved, and that talks into the concept of transparency. How far does this concept of transparency need to stretch? And, you know, what does it need to refer to from reporting to pricing to, to sharing knowledge with competitors? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Transparency for me is quite a vital component. And it's a vital component from a number of aspects, actually. If we as and beyond, for example, put out a uh, impact review every year, in that impact review, we're very honest in terms of what we've achieved and what we haven't achieved, what our goals are. And why this is important is, firstly, it helps the tourists choose exactly where they would like to go. So our guests have some handle of what we're doing at large level. Second is, is that they understand that we progressively are trying to improve our, our responsible behavior. And, and the third thing is, is that what we have done and the methodologies we've used uh, have been written up and very clear for anybody to pick up through this impact review. And our failures are written in there as well. So that uh, if somebody was to potentially do the same thing, they could in fact get tips on what worked and what didn't work and what to do and what not to do and some of the outcomes. And by so doing, get shortcuts to enabling their product to more efficiency in that regard. You know, I think one of the, the aspects around uh, transparency is I know that certain public companies obviously have to publish all their results, including turnover, et cetera, and private companies don't have to do that. But I think really, what are you aiming at what you want to get out of there? And, and for me, what you're aiming at is you want to work out whether this company is responsible, what actions it's taking, is it something that can be copied? Is there a model that potentially is in that that's usable? What could we slice and dice and use aspects of? to enable the next company to do it, if not the same, better. So I, I do think that transparency is a, a really good thing. And I think from a guest making a decision, it just makes it so much easier to know what you're dealing with. And, and also, you know, for me, guests are traveling with purpose now. They want to, they are being quite discerning about what they want out of their travels. 
they're not coming here with an open book and just sort of saying, I'll go with the flow, generally speaking. They're coming here with certain elements that they need to achieve with, uh, once they've traveled and certain takeouts that they want to walk away with. And by disclosing a lot of the information, helps those guests make a decision. And it also helps those guests in terms of support. You know, a lot of guests, a lot of people out there actually want to be part of helping organizations make impact. We all understand we're in one world, whether it's, it's not just and beyond or a Sangeeta or a Londlozi. If those three were working together, gee, the impact would probably be tripled. So from a guest perspective, I think it's really important as to also what role can they play, you know, and, and what aspect of that. So is it the conservation arena? Is it the community arena? Is it a, a social infrastructure that's required? gives them insight into aspects that they, by engaging with and beyond in specific, they will know what they can get out and how they can get involved. So I think it's a vital, vital component. And we embrace this exposure element to everybody, not just to our guests. It's also to the communities that we deal with, to bring them in, do what we call conservation lessons, to bring those kids that are our next leadership, bring them in, expose them to the business and, and the conservation arena because they don't get that kind of exposure any other way. And therefore, when it's time for them to make the decisions and be the leaders, uh, our best chance is by giving as much as we can so that the next generation of youth are making the right decisions or the politicians, you know, because generally speaking, the politicians are not always conservationists and they are making the decisions on every conservationist's uh, patch. And, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, but, but had they had exposure, had they understood the intricacies of what, uh, you know, of what we're dealing with here, they might have made a far better decision and, and at least had, been, had insight into what is going on. So for me, exposure and being transparent, it wins the war. And this war really is about saving our planet in some regard and making sure that we have a sustainable planet. And, and we all got a bit to play towards it. So whatever we can do as an organization and put it out there and somebody else can gain from it and, and utilize it and take the, the learnings, we're just so much further down the track of, of making sure that the planet survives, yeah. I think you're absolutely right about travelers wanting to travel with purpose and about examining their travel choices so much more carefully. But there is also a real role that, that the travel industry has to play in educating and influencing. Correct. Yeah, you know, I came from a guiding world. I started out as a guide. And I know that on the back of that vehicle that you take out are the who's who of the business world out there, particularly in our NBN lodges because we have international players from all over the world who are captains of business, you know, coming into our realm. They are, if I can put it this way, they are unguarded at that point of sitting on the vehicle because they are completely listening to what you as a guide have to say. And your influence can be huge. If that captain of industry takes one thing that, that is an improvement and goes back to his, his area of influence and, and implements that, your, your spread of your impact is just massive. So, so we have this stage, if I can call it there, that you've got people in influence. We are exceptionally fortunate in that regard and we can make a great impact. Absolutely. 
I think you actually perfectly forestalled the next question I was going to ask, which was about, you know, more ways in which we can educate and influence. But um, I think you're perfectly right about the guides. You know, you you catch somebody at, at a moment when they're already emotionally vested in that experience that you're having. And whatever you've got to say has got so much more impact. That's right. Time. Tony, thank you so much. It's It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and the time has flown. And I really, really appreciate your insight, taking so many concepts and simplifying them so beautifully. So thank you very much. A real pleasure, Cass. And uh, we look forward to always making a difference wherever we can hey, on this planet. So I appreciate what you're doing as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.